0: I love the providence of God, and I really enjoy watching the providence of God play out in our lives. What are you talking about, Jim? Well, I'll tell you. (laughs) This past Sunday, we were talking about eschatology and about the craziness of the world that lays ahead of us. And of course, you've heard me use the phrase, for many, many years, I have said to you, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. And so now we find ourselves in the midst of all kinds of political wrangling and backlashing and lawsuits, and the United States of America has never been less united than it is right now, which means that no matter what way it comes out, 50% of the nation is going to be unhappy with it. And so there's all this division going on, and And yet providentially on Wednesday nights we are also reading from Isaiah and if you come away with nothing else from Isaiah, I hope you see that it is sovereign God who lifts up nations, who lifts up kings, who takes down nations, who takes down kings, who raises up whole people groups and then destroys those people groups off the planet so that they no longer exist. And so take those two things. I mean, on Sunday, I left here feeling like, and I even asked Micah about it, I even asked Leon about it, I asked Tom about it, I said, "Uh, that was kind of a heavy topic, and it was kind of a, I know it was kind of a dark, somewhat depressing topic, do you think it was okay that I did that on a Sunday morning, maybe I should keep that for a Wednesday night, more of a teaching time, Sunday morning is kind of rallying the troops, and, and so should I have not gone into the eschatology stuff. Turns out it was exceptionally well timed (laughs) and providentially God knew exactly what he was doing and the combination of talking eschatology on Sunday morning, which we're going to do again this coming Sunday morning the combination of doing that on Sundays and then looking at Isaiah and God's absolute sovereignty over nations just couldn't be better timed and I think God knew that way back when when he uh, decided that these were the things we were going to be doing. It's interesting that we began this series of topical messages and then be the Christian messages and week to week, we didn't really know how much longer they were going to take And, and we ended up exactly right where we belong at this exact moment talking about the very things that I think are most beneficial to us as a church which is really quite remarkable, almost like God is completely in charge. Now, as we look at Isaiah 17 and 18 tonight, we're going to see yet again that God is the God who lifts up nations, takes down nations, and then uses nations of people to accomplish his will and then punishes nations for doing the very thing that he has caused them to do, and when we rise up and say, not right, not fair, when we rise up and say, I don't like the way the election is going, I'm reminded constantly then of Daniel, well, Nebuchadnezzar, saying that the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing before God. He's going to do what he wants to do. He already has his plan, and he is going to accomplish his plan regardless of who agrees with it, and regardless of who says, well, I think, God, the better way for you to do this would be to follow the plan that I have constructed. But the simple reality is God is going to do what God's going to do because he has already foreordained the end from the beginning and he is getting us to that predetermined end. We are all traveling inexorably toward God's predetermined end. The nation of the United States, whatever happens to us, if we rose up for a couple hundred years and then we are completely disintegrated, That makes us no different than Babylon, which was once the great nation that ruled over the Middle East and was seemingly impregnable and then fell. And God, at the very moment that it was falling, took credit for it. Wrote on a wall, mene mene tekel Farson. This is the work of God doing what God does. And then he brought along the Medo-Persian Empire, which these days is divided up between Iran and Iraq, Iran used to be called Persia. We don't call it that anymore. We call it Iran now. But those nations are over there forgetting the once great empire that ruled the Middle East. So we see in the Bible and we see in history that great nations have risen up and fallen. And we should not think that the United States is immune from that. Nor should we think that any nation on the planet is immune from that. So what should we be doing? Here's what I know for sure. The same God that was on the throne a week ago is the same God that's on the throne now, who is the same God that was on the throne when Babylon fell, who is the same God that was sitting on his throne doing whatever seemed good to him when the Jews killed his son. All those things occurred in human history exactly as God determined that they were going to happen. Now, we don't know what God's got planned for this world or the nations of this world or how it's going to turn out or how it's going to play out. So then the better part of wisdom would be get on your face in front of the one who's in complete charge. Recognize his sovereignty acquiesce to the fact that he's going to do whatever he's going to do, regardless of your opinion. He doesn't care about your opinion of it. Therefore, your job is to worship him regardless of what it is he chooses to do. The second thing I know for sure is, you're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. Look, I was born in 1955. Eisenhower was president at that time. Most of you don't even remember who Eisenhower was. But he was president when I was born. I have lived through a succession of presidents. Some were considered to be good presidents. Some were considered to be bad presidents. But it all depends on who you ask. There are people who think Ronald Reagan was the best president who ever lived. And there are other people who think Ronald Reagan was a dope. And so... Human opinions mean nothing. God is going to raise up the leaders he's going to raise up. He's going to take down the leaders that he's going to take down. And regardless of what happens in this nation, you're going to be fine. How do I know that? Because King David said, I am old and I have been young, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken. I have never seen the seed begging bread. God's going to provide for you. Amen. The third thing I know for sure is, Once all of this plays out, and the machinations of human beings in this particular country, once all of that finally plays out to some sort of conclusion, whatever that conclusion is, the next day, most of us are going to get up and go to work and provide for our families, put on some clothes, have something to eat, and go on with our lives and we'll survive the same way we've survived every other president that went before. Why? Because our strength, our confidence, our hope is not in Washington. Washington, get it right, is a completely corrupt swamp. But you know what? The world is a completely corrupt swamp. And so should we be surprised? that completely corrupt, swampy people do completely corrupt, swampy things? No, we should not be surprised at all. Instead, what we should be is looking forward to the return of the righteous one, the only holy, righteous savior, because that is the only place you're going to find genuine deliverance. You're never going to find it in this world. Human beings have a long history of demonstrating that they are no good at self-governance. And until the King of Kings is on the throne, the world is going to continue just making crazy decisions for themselves. Amen So the potential is that things that we disagree with strongly, anti-Christian things could happen in America. it could get worse. But how long have I been saying, "Cheer up, saints. It's going to get worse." Make sense? Mm -hmm. Now tonight, we're going to see God prophesy the destruction of two more Gentile capitals and nations of people. And he is going to prophesy against them in advance before any of these things actually occur. And yet, in order to demonstrate that he is God, that he is the only God, that he is the only God who is He predicts these things, and then he sets about to use his almighty power to actually accomplish the things that he has announced he's going to do. No other god does that. No other religious literature does that. And God keeps doing it to demonstrate that he is the only god who actually exists. And he challenges other gods. He challenges other religions and says to them, you do it. You try it. Because he knows that those gods are not. They're rock, they're stone, they're wood, they're the the artifice of men's hands. And so they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't think, they can't hear, they can't decide, and they certainly can't tell you the future. But God does two really interesting things in all his prophecy, but you're going to see it really clearly here in chapter 17. And that is that God not only tells you what's going to happen the same way that the Bible tells you what already has happened, but unlike every other history of the world and every other prophetic attempt to tell you the future of the world, God is the only one who can tell you what's happened, what's happening, what's going to happen, and why. So that suddenly these events make sense. These are not just arbitrary things that God is doing. God is not capricious. God is not lifting up and taking down whole nations of people just to amuse himself. He's doing it because these nations have continued to rebel against him. Shall we apply that for just a moment? America has been rebelling against the only God that is for a long time. Should we be surprised? if we fall under the hand of his judgment. The nations of the earth have been rebelling against God for a long time. We are not surprised to see them falling into all kinds of decay and dismay because that's the way sinful human beings are. You get a bunch of sinners together and then you tell them to self-govern and they will always choose badly. And as a consequence, God will then punish them, but not until he uses them to accomplish what he has intended to accomplish. And we've seen that pattern over and over and over again. Now, back in chapter 10, we saw that God used Assyria in order to punish the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes, Israel. And then as you continue through chapter 10, you see that God then punishes Assyria For the haughtiness of heart, in other words, the pride with which they attacked God's people Israel, even though God used them to attack God's people Israel. Okay, well, that kind of plays into what we're about to see in chapter 17. The particular oracle here in the first 11 verses of chapter 17 is directed against Damascus in particular. Damascus was the capital of Aram. So when you read about the Arameans, their capital is Damascus. And so the theme, really, of the early part of Isaiah so far has been the invasion of Aram and Israel by the Assyrians. Assyrians. That's why I mentioned you saw it all the way back at chapter 10 We're in chapter 17 it's still going to be coming up because this was such a vitally important event in human history that God allowed somebody to attack the 10 northern tribes his people and then scatter them take them into captivity originally and then scatter them to the four corners of the world north, south, east, west the four winds of heaven scatter them And then God takes credit for it and says, I did that. I scattered you, and so I'm going to draw you again. So I'm going to collect you again. So I'm going to bring you back to your land again. The same God who successfully scattered them has given them promises of a glorious future, and the guarantee of the glorious future is the fact that God scattered them. He predicts that he's going to scatter them. Then he scatters them. Then he predicts that he's going to gather them. So he's going to gather them. Because each stage of what he has already said he was going to do, he's actually done. The northern kingdom of Israel had made an alliance with Aram, with the Arameans, against the Assyrians. So here in chapter 17... Isaiah, once again, is noting that Aram and Israel are going to be defeated by the Assyrians. Now, sure enough, Assyria does defeat Aram in 732 BC. That's just a fact of history. And they do overtake Israel in 722 BC, which means this is genuine prophecy because all of this that Isaiah has written down is in advance of it actually occurring. And we know that. Historically, that's just simple calendar dates. So let's start reading chapter 17, verse 1, the oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus, the capital of the Arameans, is about to be removed from being a city. And it will become a fallen ruin. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. God says this major city, the capital of the Arameans, is not going to be a city anymore. That's enough to demonstrate to you that it is God who decides when a city exists and when it doesn't. He decides when a nation exists and when it doesn't. He decides when a king is raised up and when a king is taken down. God decides all of that. He announced it in advance. Sure enough, it happened. The cities of Aror, which is a city in Aram, those cities are forsaken. And they will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be none to frighten them, to frighten the flocks. In other words, there's going to be no people there. There's just going to be wild animals living in the area where those mighty cities once were. Verse 3, and the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim. Ephraim is just another nickname for the northern tribes. The ten northern tribes are called the House of Israel, and they're also called Ephraim and Mount Ephraim. And so God is now saying, not only are the cities of Aram going to fall, but there's going to be no more fortified cities in Ephraim, in Israel. They're all going to fall. And sovereignty, independence, power and might is going to fall from Damascus, the capital of Aram. And the remnant of Aram, they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, the same way Israel's going to fall, that's the way Aram's going to fall. They're both going to be completely wiped out by the Assyrians. Now, by the way, if God can not just predict this, but declare this in advance, doesn't that mean that if he had wanted to, he could have protected them? Mm -hmm. He could have made Damascus continue to this very day. Damascus could be the leading greatest city on the planet right now had he chosen to do that. And the northern ten tribes of Ephraim would be intact today in the Middle East except that God decided to scatter them. And since he decided to scatter them, it's obvious that he could have protected them. But he didn't. And he's going to tell you not only that he's not going to, but he's going to tell you why. And the why is going to sound really familiar. Verse 4, now it will come about. In that day, In other words, in the day that Aram and Israel fall to the Assyrians, it's going to come about in that day that the glory of Jacob will fade and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. In other words, he's going to be starving, not only literally, but figuratively. The great cities, the great glory that was once Jacob, the northern tribes, Israel, is all going to fade away. It will be even like a reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears. Or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. The valley of Rephaim is a fertile area that's west of Jerusalem. And you read about Rephaim in Second Samuel because David twice there had defeated the Philistines at Rephaim. So then God now is saying, that it's going to be like an olive tree, it's going to be like one who is gleaning, it's going to be like a harvester where there's just nothing left. They're out there gleaning, they're trying, they're out there working, they're out there trying to pick some grapes off the vine, there's just nothing left. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arms harvest the ears, which means all he's going to end up with is an armful. He's not going to end up with some great harvest. Or it'll be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephium, and yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives on the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord God. In other words, he's describing they're going to become lean, they're going to starve, He's described here going to an olive tree, expecting to find ample food, and you have to shake the tree so that maybe one or two will fall out of the top branches because that's all that's left to eat on the branches. So God is describing the starvation that's coming. And then he says, declares the Lord, the God of Israel, at the end of verse 6. This is why I said this is not just God looking down the long telescope of time and predicting what he sees is going to happen as if men have made up their own mind and if men by their own willfulness have chosen to go to war with each other or take down cities. God says, this is all happening because I declared it. And then God sets about to use his almighty power to make it happen. In that day, says verse 7, A man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. Isn't that just like human beings? Read verse 8, you'll get a better sense of it. And he will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the asherim and the incense stands. God has created a contrast. Now, the northern tribes, when they separated from the southern tribes, they immediately went into apostasy. And the first king of the northern tribes, Jeroboam, purposefully wanted to keep his people in the northern tribes from going down to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple there because he was afraid politically that if they went back to Jerusalem, they would reform their alliance with their southern brothers and then he wouldn't be king anymore so he made a politically expedient idea that he would set up asherim and he would set up high places he would set up places where they would go to worship outside of Jerusalem and so they would go there to their altars to the work of their hands they would go to the things that their fingers had made and they would worship these idols of stone and wood and of their own craftsmanship But once the trouble comes, once the leanness comes, once the fatness disappears and the fortified cities are crushed, once that happens, then in that day, every man is going to have regard for the real God. In that day, they will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. That's the first reason that God gives for why he's doing what he's doing. Because God knows full well that human beings, even to this moment, don't come rushing to him and praising him and crying out to him when everything's going good. When everything's going your way, you're not looking for God. But let God throw cancer on you. Let God throw overwhelming bills at you. Let God give you a sick child. Let God throw a Mack truck in your way while you're driving and you end up in a hospital from a horrible accident. You know who you're crying to? You're calling God. You're doing that immediately. You don't care about what the doctors think. You know that God is the only one that can help you under these conditions in this situation. This is the first reason that God gave up the northern tribes of Israel because he says, in that day, when I do that, then they're going to cry out to me. They're going to come looking to me, and they're not going to regard the altars, the work of their own hands, nor will they look to that which their own fingers have made, even the ashram and the incense stands. In that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest. Have You ever been walking through the middle of a forest and suddenly you realize that you can't see a street in any direction and you're in a place that's just overgrown and it's just a forsaken part of the forest it's just overgrown and there's none of men's craft anywhere to be found he says that's what the strong cities are going to be like just like abandoned forests forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel and the land will be a desolation okay then starting at verse 10 God tells you why why I'm doing this it starts with for you which is his way of saying because you and he's going to say to the Israelites because you have forsaken me and forgotten the God of your salvation I'm doing this to you So that you will have regard for me. So that you will recognize that I am the God who is in charge. So let's say, hypothetically, that everything goes bad for America. Just hypothetically. Let's say the next four years get completely upended. The last time you saw national repentance in the United States... When you saw the Congress singing God bless America on the steps of the Capitol building, the last time that happened was when planes hit buildings in New York. It's almost 20 years ago. In the last 20 years, they went from God bless America to we don't care what God thinks. God might be trying to get our attention. Or he might finally be pouring out judgment. To which I say, Call on God while he's near. Repent and turn and seek out God while he may be found. Run to Jesus with everything you've got. Because not only is that his purpose, but at some point he's going to send his son back to get the church. And then wrath of God is going to happen. Remember that we're in the midst of the big picture. The things that happen today are going to fade away like dust. It's the big picture that matters because that's God's picture. For you, verse 10, for you have forgotten the God of your salvation and you have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Isn't that great language? Mm -hmm. Jesus himself comes on the planet, the one who is the Savior, the one who is the God of our salvation and he talks about himself as being the rock, the stone that the builders rejected. He's that rock that's coming down that we read about out of Daniel, who's gonna come down and crush all the kingdoms of this world and set up his kingdom that will never be destroyed. He's that rock and people have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Run to him, that's why I just got done saying, run to him, he's the only refuge. I was talking to Leon today. What a surprise. We live in the same house at the moment. I was talking to Leon today, and I said to him, I don't know how people who don't understand the sovereignty of God get through terrible sickness or terrible pain and sorrow or the troubles of this world. I don't know how they get through it. It is only if you understand God's sovereignty and his protective hand on his people, that you can have that hope, that peace that passes understanding. You can only have that if you understand that an absolutely sovereign God is in control. And that's the exact same way I view the political machinations that are going on in the world right now. I don't know how people who don't know sovereign God are dealing with it right now. They're going crazy right now. They're going nutty right now. I'm not. Because the same God who has fed and clothed me for 65 long years isn't going to stop tomorrow just because the politics of America didn't go the way I would prefer. Instead, he's going to protect his people, care for us. And so I say to everybody, run to him. Run to the rock of your refuge. Therefore, Here's what he's going to do. Therefore, you plant good plants. You plant plants that should give you grapes and fruit and vegetables to eat. You plant delightful plants. And you set them with vine slips of a strange God. In other words, let's see if I can characterize this. He's saying you can work hard. You can work hard according to your own plans that you think are going to take care of you and protect you long-term, provide for you. But if you intermix it with the worship of a strange God, it's all going to come to nothing. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much effort you put into it, if you abandon and forsake the only true God who actually is the God of your salvation, doesn't matter how hard you work. Here's the way he puts it. Therefore, you will plant delightful plants and you will set them with vine slips of a strange God. And in the day that you plant it, you're going to carefully fence it in so that the foxes and the animals can't get to it. And in the morning... You bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap. In other words, it's going to be garbage. In a day of sickliness and incurable pain. So no matter how hard you work, and you plant the good plants, and you put up the fence, and you protect it, and you bring it, right to harvest. It even blossoms. Your seed comes up and blossoms and you think, oh good, I'm going to have plenty of food. I'm going to have a great harvest. The God of the harvest guarantees that he's going to turn it into a useless heap in the day of sickliness and incurable pain. Why? Because he's in charge and if you abandon him, he's going to punish you. The writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves What's the next part? He chastens. He chastens. And he scourges every son that he receives. So that means that the chastening and the scourging of God is for one of two reasons. Either it's for the purpose of restoring you to worship him which is what he intends in the first place, and he's going to love you enough to correct you, even if he has to correct you harshly, that is still an act of gracious love on the part of God for your sake, or he's punishing you because you are an enemy of his, and he is in the process of casting you away. So I say, even in the midst of bad times, get on his side. Mm -hmm. Stay on his side. Because if you're his, he's in the process of correcting you. Your harvest is going to be a heap in the day of sickliness and incurable pain. Here's God talking about sickliness and incurable pain. He knows what that is. People, when they go through sickliness or incurable pain, they cry out to God. They cry, God, heal me. Why do they cry to God? Because he's the one who is ultimately responsible for the fact that you're sickly and in incurable pain. He's the only one that can relieve you from it, but he's also the one who causes it. Alas, says verse 12, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. That's his description of the armies of Assyria coming down on Israel and coming down on Damascus. They're going to be like roaring waves, an uproar of many people. Verse 13, the nations rumble on like the rumblings of many waters. But he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like the whirling dust before the gale of wind. That happened. I've told you this for weeks now. Assyria made it all the way to two miles from Jerusalem to the city of Nob and in one night an angel of God killed 185,000 of them scattered them and sent the king running back home God's in charge God says in advance what he's going to do but notice that he also said the nations are going to be afraid and the nations are going to rumble like the rumbling of many waters. But then God will rebuke those nations so that they flee away. So who's going to protect you? Who's in charge? That's why I started out by saying, you'll be okay. He'll take care of you. He keeps saying it over and over again in his word. If a nation falls, it's because he decided it was going to fall. If a nation stands, it's because he protected that nation. He raises up thrones. He takes down thrones. And once again I say, and the people of earth are reputed as nothing. He's going to do all his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stop his hand, and no one can say, what are you doing? Because he's going to do what he's going to do regardless. Our job is to worship him as he does it. At evening time, behold, there is terror. Before morning, they are no more. That's right. At evening time, the armies of the Assyrians laid down, and in the morning, they weren't anymore because an angel of the Lord came to protect Jerusalem. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. So in that chapter, Isaiah has told Damascus and the northern tribes. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the southern tribes. He's writing to Judah. He's writing to the kings of Judah. And he's saying, now this is going to happen. The Assyrians are going to come down on the Arameans, who are in league with the Israelites, and they're all going to be destroyed, and God is going to lay waste to it. But before they get to you, God is going to wipe them out in a night. That's who's in charge. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us. In other words, he's saying, that's what's going to happen to those who are trying to attack us. This is what's going to occur among the Assyrians. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush. Now, we don't call it Cush anymore. This phrase, this land of whirring wings, probably has something to do with locusts. There were a large amount of locusts in northern Africa in those days, and it was known as a place of whirring insects, and that may be what this is a reference to. But Cush is modern-day southern Egypt and Sudan, northern Ethiopia. If you can picture that on the map, that's what used to be Kush. And Kush was divided up by one of the tributaries of the uh, River Nile. And so sure enough, what we read is that Kush lies beyond the rivers. So beyond the rivers, exactly right, that's where Kush is. Those are the people that God is speaking to very specifically. Now, apparently, according to what we're about to read, the Cushites sent envoys in papyrus boats to suggest that Israel would form an alliance with them against the Assyrians. The Cushites, we're going to see described here as a people who were tall and fearsome and aggressive, and they spoke a language that sounded strange to the Hebrews probably because it was a non-Semitic language. Some of the surrounding nations around the Hebrews, they could understand it because they were all Semitic-based languages. But coming up out of Kush, there would have been this completely foreign language to them. So like Egypt, Kush is divided by rivers, as I told you, a branch of the Nile. Now I will also tell you, full disclosure, that there's nothing known anywhere else in the Bible or even in extra-biblical history that tells us anything about any of the contacts between Cush and Israel in some kind of joint venture against Assyria, and yet we read about it right here in the Bible. So you either have to say, well, this is our historic source. The Bible says it happened, so it happened. But there are no extra-biblical sources that talk about it And so sometimes people will say, well, that probably didn't happen because there are no extra-biblical sources. But the fact that there is a historic source right here is enough for me. Am I boring you yet? No. You interested in this? Yes. Okay. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by the sea, even in papyrus vessels on the surface of the water, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation. Okay, now that is God's description of Cush. The Cushites were tall, and they were strong, and they were feared far and wide. They were a powerful, they were an oppressive nation. Okay, where are they now? Gone. Gone. Yeah, As I already said, you can go look at southern Egypt or the Sudan or northern Ethiopia. That is the area that used to be Kush. Is it called Kush anymore? No. No, that's gone. That was a powerful mighty nation on planet Earth at one time. And I'm sure that the people who were living in Kush, the Kushites, or the Kushans, whichever you prefer, <laughs> as... Th- As those people were living in the land of Cush, they must have thought, we're we're the top, we're the best, we're the strongest, we're oppressive, we rule everybody we come in contact with, we are the mightiest group of people here in Egypt, and no one can oppress us, and no one can fight against us, we have, we're going to last forever, we have a mighty, grand, great kingdom, gone, it's just gone, because God is in charge of raising up and taking down nations. And by the way, he's still in that business. All you inhabitants of the world and you dwellers on the earth, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you will see it. And as soon as the trumpet is blown, you will hear it. This is language that we've already seen earlier in Isaiah, that God was going to set his standard on a bald mountain, a mountain that had no trees or anything on it, so that all the surrounding Gentile nations could see it, so that God could collect his army for the purpose of fighting against Israel. Now here is that same language. That standard is going to be raised, and the Cushites are going to be called, and apparently the Israelites are trying to call them to make them, since they are strong and powerful, come fight with us against the Assyrians. For thus the Lord has told me, says Isaiah, I will look from my dwelling place quietly. I love that word because the picture is God looking down from his dwelling place totally nonplussed by what's going on in the world. We get so riled up. We get so anxious. We get so worried. We just, we get all rattled by what's going on in the world. And God looks out from his dwelling place quietly, calmly, like dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of a harvest. Boy, on one side, that describes God as dazzling heat in sunshine, but then also being a comfort, that he is like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. If you're out there in the field harvesting and you're sweating, and then you get cooler weather and a little bit of dew to, to moisten your skin, that's a refreshing. God says, that's me. For before the harvest, as soon as the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, then he will cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. In other words, as soon as these Assyrians look like they're going to come and conquer, they're only going to be able to accomplish what I have determined they're going to accomplish, and then I'm going to cut them off. I said Assyrians, I mean the Kushites here too. He's going to cut off the sprigs like with a pruning knife and remove them and cut away the spreading branches, and they will be left together For mountain birds of prey, in other words, the birds are going to eat their flesh, they're going to be wiped out, and for the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will spend the whole summer feeding on them, and all the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time eating on them. At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from the people tall and smooth. Even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. So God says, yeah, I'm going to punish them, and I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to make them food for the birds of the air and the wild animals. And you know what the result is going to be? They're going to worship me. He starts out by describing them as this fearsome, oppressive people, and he finishes the chapter by saying, they're going to come to Mount Zion. I'm going to drive them to Mount Zion. Now, By the way, that hasn't happened yet. Suddenly, Isaiah did what we've seen him do so very often. He sees these visions of what's coming And then those visions leap over hundreds and thousands of years, but he sees it all as one vision. It's all going to take place collectively. It's all going to take place one after the other, when in fact we know that Cush has been completely wiped out. But the promise is that the people of Cush, those people who are tall and smooth, even a people feared far and wide, powerful and oppressive nation, the ones whose land the rivers divide, they're going to come to the place With the name of the Lord of hosts, even to Mount Zion, by the way, we read there's going to be a pathway from Egypt, so that the Egyptians are going to come and worship at Jerusalem. That would include the Cushites. Just thought I'd mention it, because our God is, what's that word, sovereign. If you get nothing else tonight... Recognize that in chapter 17 and chapter 18, God is declaring his absolute sovereignty over the nations of the earth, not just over Israel and Jerusalem, the Jews and the Israelites, but over the Gentile nations. He is in complete control of them. Next week, he's even going to branch out into Egypt as a whole because northern Egypt, especially those who oppressed God's people, Israel, they too are going to have to answer for what they have done in the way that they have treated God's people. So if that's the case, if that's the kind of God we're talking about, if that's the God of the Bible, then we really don't have anything to worry about because our God is not only going to protect us, but he's going to fight for us, and he is going to make sure that whatever else happens in this world, we end up in the very place that he has determined for us, Because he is still in the practice of raising up and taking down nations. But never once has he abandoned his people. Now his people have abandoned him, we read tonight. His people have abandoned him and gone off to their foreign gods. But because he's a faithful God, he brings trouble into their life. So that they will come back to worship him again. Because he's faithful. Because he will bring his people back to him. And if you belong to him... You're coming back to him no matter what. You can run. You can try to get away from him. You can rebel. You can run as fast and hard as you possibly can. And he's going to get you. And he's going to bring you back. So I would say, take the easy road. Stop banging your head against the brick wall of God's sovereignty. Get on your face and worship him now because you're going to worship him anyway. And you might as well get used to it because you're going to worship him for all of eternity. So you might as well start now because he is the only God who deserves absolute and complete fidelity, faith, and worship. And he keeps saying it over and over and over again. You got it? Yes, sir. Now, wasn't it providential that that's what we talked about tonight? And when we started the book of Isaiah months ago, I didn't know that tonight that's where we'd be. But like I said when I began tonight, providence works. And it's fun to watch it. It's almost like God saying, I'm right here. I'm right here. Don't worry. I got you. Questions? Say goodnight to the internet congregation. Goodnight.